Well, good morning. Happy Easter. I don't know about you, but uh, I get excited this time of year. As a believer, I think most of you will agree with me that it doesn't get better than Easter. We celebrate now the, the final death of death, the end of just millennia of human striving for eternal life, now found in Jesus Christ. Uh, We celebrate something wonderful today. And what we celebrate today is not just our particular flavor. Uh, This is a fact of history. I'm going to share a little bit of the evidence for the resurrection with you this morning. I think it'll be exciting. I hope it isn't uh, just a lot of information. But I want everyone here to walk away knowing this is a fact of history that we celebrate. It's not just a celebration or a holiday. We're celebrating hope today, true hope. Uh, And when we see things going around the world like we did uh, in Sri Lanka and other places, uh, we could be discouraged by those things, right? We have problems right here in our own area. I'm sure many of you have issues that you're dealing with in your own families and in your own situations. Uh, Whatever circumstances you came in with today, whatever challenges you're looking at, whatever needs you have, what we celebrate today is the solution. Uh, We can have hope because Jesus conquered death. We can have hope because he rose from the dead. Amen? So I know today that you're going to be encouraged by his word afresh with that sense of hope in him. Uh, We're going to be reading out of 1 Corinthians 15 today. You're welcome to turn there with me. I'll share other verses throughout the message, uh, but you could probably just camp out in 1 Corinthians 15. You don't have to go everywhere, but you're welcome to do that too if you want. But we're going to be studying about a destiny-changing formula that's going to make sense in a minute, a history-changing fact, and a reality-changing focus. And as we introduce uh, 1 Corinthians, I want to talk a little bit about Corinth. It means a lot to me to know that you know we're talking about real place, real people, uh, real events. And when we read God's Word, that's what we're talking about. So this past week, I actually was in Greece. Uh, I took this picture on Tuesday. And uh, this is a picture of Corinth, where Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians and the next letter, 2 Corinthians 2. And this is a real place, and you can visit it today. Not only uh, do we see the archaeological ruins of Corinth, but we see a lot about what we see in Scripture happen in that city. So in Acts 18, we read that Paul went and preached at the synagogue there. Uh, Previously, in the chapter before that, we realized that this was his protocol. He did this city after city. In Acts 17, 2, it says, as was his custom, uh, he went and preached at the synagogue. They haven't uncovered the synagogue at Corinth, probably because it was long ago uh, destroyed and the the rock was used in other buildings. But they do have these two finds. The top rock there says Synagogue of the Jews, and the bottom one, interestingly, shows three menorahs, right? So this archaeological evidence of the synagogue that Paul preached at right there in Corinth. And, And while he preached, there was an incredible response. You're probably familiar with Aquila and Priscilla. He met them there in Corinth, and they ended up being instrumental in his ministry for years and years afterwards, and in multiple locations, right? They were a part of his ministry in many other areas, like Rome and Ephesus. Uh, He met Crispus there, who was a leader of the synagogue, who came to faith in Christ. 
and was one of the few Corinthians that Paul baptized. Paul mentions him in 1 Corinthians as one of the few that he baptized. He met uh, Sosthenes there, who was uh, with Paul when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. He's mentioned in the first verse of the book. Uh, He also was a synagogue leader in that city who was transformed by the gospel when he heard it preached him. And then one of the most exciting things, I'd heard about this, and I'd I'd yearned to see this place, uh, or this uh, object, was the Erastus inscription. Here's a picture of it. But Erastus also was a man of high standing in Corinth. Uh, In Acts 19, we see him traveling with Paul in Ephesus, but that's the first mention of him. So presumably, uh, he first encountered the gospel right before that in Corinth. In Romans 16, Paul says that he had a high standing in the city of Corinth. And Paul wrote Romans from Corinth. And he called him the director of the, of the city's public works there. This inscription actually says that he's in charge. It says Erastus who oversees the city's finances, basically. Uh, paraphrasing. But this inscription totally parallels what Paul writes about Erastus in Romans. And it's an incredible archaeological uh, corroboration of Erastus. We hear about him one last time in 2 Timothy chapter 4, right at the end of Paul's ministry. And he, he stuck with Paul till the very end. A man that had uh, been transformed by the gospel and, and stuck with Paul and continued in ministry and eventually got sent back to Corinth, uh, where presumably he continued serving God. While Paul is in Corinth, he faces some persecution. They drag him in front of the place of judgment. That's uh, actually the word used is the bema. It's the same word that Paul refers to in the next book to the Corinthians. We will all stand before the bema or the judgment seat of Christ. For those that have believed in Jesus, it will be a time of reward because our sin has been punished at the cross, right? Okay, but Paul was referring to this picture. That's the, the Bema, that's the judgment seat or the judgment place that he was released from responsibility there, spent another year plus in Corinth. But that's the picture that the Corinthians had in mind as Paul talked about those things. So uh, those are a few pictures from Corinth uh, that were taken about five days ago. And what I want you to take away from that is as we jump into chapter 15 here, We're talking about a real place, real events, real people, and we're celebrating a real hope today. So this is not just, again, like I said, our particular flavor. Now, uh, Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, they were not all living like what we celebrate today was true, right? There was a lot of immorality in the church. There was a division in the church. There were people fighting each other, even Christians taking other Christians to court. And there was a whole lot going on. And Paul writes to this church, and he really challenges them in many different ways throughout uh, 1 Corinthians. And then there's even more trouble going on in 2 Corinthians, and he addresses that there. But right here in 1 Corinthians, he spends an entire chapter talking about the resurrection. Uh, more than we see anywhere else in all of Scripture on this topic, uh, as far as the theological implications of it and things like that. And for that reason, I wanted to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 and spend our morning uh, there. So I'm going to be reading the first 10 verses, but we're going to split it up uh, as we work through the chapter. And as we read this, I, I want you to be reminded of the truth that this is true and it really does change everything. So, first of all, it's a destiny-changing formula. Uh, Let me read the first two verses here. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, 
on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you've believed in vain. Paul had preached the gospel to these Corinthians. In Romans 1, he clarifies what that is. I'm paraphrasing here. But he says it's the good news, that's what the word literally means, of the Messiah who was foretold in the Old Testament. I'll share some of those prophecies with you. He descended from David. He was the one and only son of God. And when he says son of God, he means the God class equal with God. In John 5, they tried to stone him because he called himself the son of God, making himself equal with God. Uh, He descended from David. He was the only son of God. He died in our place. This is so significant because we are sinners that could never, ever, ever pay for our own sins. And here we see God that would love us so much that he would come and take our sins on himself and die on the cross for our sins. If it ended there, it wouldn't be the greatest news. But it gets so much better, right? He rose from the dead. And he did that to give a gift of salvation to all who believe in him. That's the good news that we celebrate on Easter. And it's the good news that the Corinthians had believed, right? Now, there's something that I think is absolutely fundamental with that message I just shared with you. It's unique among the world's uh, worldviews and faiths. John Oswald, he's professor of Old Testament, uh, Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary, and he makes an audacious claim. He says there are only two world religions, right? Have you heard this before? There are only two world religions. He says there's the one that says you can achieve your own redemption through your own efforts. And there's the one that says you can't, and you need a savior to do it for you. Uh, This is what Jesus did. He came to do what we could never do on our own. Uh, I'm going to show you a picture of a a chemistry lab here. My degree in college was chemistry. And I only did it long enough to, well, I finished a, a bachelor's degree in it, but only because I'd gotten too far into the program before I could pull out of the program without uh, <laughs> causing damage. I hated chemistry, and uh, <laughs> I still don't like it very much. People always ask me for help in their chemistry, like, don't ever ask me, guys. <laughs> uh, and I say, hey, that's, that's a part of my testimony. That's behind me. <laughs> Uh, But anyway, one thing I found is no matter how sincere I was, doing the wrong formula didn't ever help me, right? And regardless of my sincerity or my effort, I always would fail when I did the wrong formula. And even if I had the right formula, doing it the wrong way led to the same results. Uh, This is what happens so often is the formula of the world is uh, regulations, do's and don'ts, right? And effort, human effort, just try harder, And that will lead to redemption if and so long as your good outweighs your bad, right? We hear that everywhere all around us. Uh, That is not a formula that will ever work, right? right? The formula that does work is grace plus faith equals salvation. It's God's gift to us, him paying for our sins in a way that we never could. And me just humbly being able to say, I surrender and I need you. So the wrong formula won't work. And Paul tells the Galatians that when we add anything to Jesus, like when we add works to Jesus, we completely miss the whole point of grace here. See, Jesus died for my sins and yours on the cross. And he did it so that anyone who would put their faith in him as Savior and Lord would be forgiven and saved. Now, the Corinthians had taken their stand on this. In Acts, it says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. 
In Ephesians, it says that it is by grace or by a free gift that you have been saved. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And Jesus himself said that when we believe in him, right away, from that moment, we experience eternal life. And we cross over from death to life upon putting our faith in him. This is a promise. And he tells us that those that have believed in him are held in his hand. He has a good grip. He's not going to let us go. He says that in John 10. In Romans 8, we're told that nothing could separate us from his love. In Philippians 1, we're told that he will finish the good work that he started in us. And in Hebrews 13, we're promised that he will never leave us. This really is very, very good news. And it's not just, like I've been saying, our particular flavor or our particular belief. This is reality. Uh, I'm going to jump right into some apologetics here. Uh, If you've never heard that term, it simply just means defending the Christian faith. And I think as Christians, uh, we live in a time and an age when we need to get good at apologetics. Because people ask, why do you believe that? And we should be ready, we're told, in 1 Peter to give them that defense uh, when we're asked. So I'm going to talk about a history-changing fact. I'm going to read verses 3 through 8, and then we'll jump into some of the evidence for what we celebrate today. For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. What Paul quotes here is actually a creed. And that's universally accepted among scholars that he's quoting a creed here. There are 30 to 40 of these in the New Testament. And they were creeds that the early church would share with each other before they actually could hold this in their hands like we can today. And 30 or 40 have made their way into the New Testament. That creed right there, even secular scholars now, would date right back to the beginning of Christianity. And even some of the biggest secular scholars would agree, you can date that back to the year of the resurrection. Okay? So this isn't a myth that evolved over time, but Paul is saying something that was fundamental to these Christians from the time that it happened. And he talks here about uh, as foretold in the scriptures, right? According to the scriptures, there are easily over 100 messianic prophecies. Some of you have probably heard over 300. Uh, I'm just giving you a conservative uh, number at over 100. Uh, Daniel in chapter 9 predicted the year that Jesus would die for our sins. This is unbelievable. It's amazing. That's almost 500 years before it happened. In Psalm 22 and in Zechariah 12, uh, we're, we're told of... The Messiah's coming crucifixion, right? Uh, David writes about that being pierced for us, right? Uh, About uh, 500 years before crucifixion was even invented by the Romans. I mean, this is unfathomable to see this kind of uh, foretelling like Paul is mentioning here. In Psalm 16 and in Isaiah 53, we even see the foretelling of his resurrection, that he would rise from the dead what we celebrate today. And every single gospel writer tells us that Jesus himself foretold his death and foretold his resurrection. Right? That's the according to the scriptures that Paul talks about. Now there's also the evidence that we can look at today. 
I'm going to read to you uh, Dr. Gary Habermas's 12 minimal facts. And these are not all the facts for the resurrection. There are many, many more. In fact, he's compiling his, his uh, life's work into one volume. If I'm not mistaken, last I heard it's at over 4,000 pages right now. It's not complete. Uh, but there is so much more than just these facts. But these are the facts that he says not even secular scholars would disagree with. Okay? So if we, he, he calls it a heads I win, tails you lose argument. <laughs> okay? So no matter how you cut it, if these facts are true, the resurrection is a fact. And to get out of that, they would have to disprove these facts. So here they are. Number one, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. And he would say over 90% of scholars, secular and Christian alike, would agree with these. Uh, there's one in here that has over 80% agreement, not 90%. Okay, number two, he was buried in a private tomb. Number three, the disciples were initially discouraged. Um, number four, Jesus' tomb was found empty shortly after his burial. Number five, the disciples and numerous others were convinced they saw the risen Christ. Number six, their lives were completely transformed, even to the point of being willing to die. People often die for a belief, but no one dies for a known lie. If these men made this up, they would not all go to be persecuted, and most of them to die for it, Right? Uh, the story of the resurrection took place very early at the beginning of church history. Their testimony and preaching took place initially in Jerusalem. That's fascinating because that's the one place in the world it could have been disproven, right? It's not like saying something crazy happened in New York, but you are all here, so you can't, dis- you can't refute it, right? <laughs> right there. Number nine, the gospel from the beginning centered on the resurrection. Number ten, Sunday became the primary day for gathering and worshiping which is fantastic that these first century Jews would go from celebrating on the Sabbath to a Sunday. Something very big had to have happened. And then number 11, James, the very brother of Jesus, went from skeptic to believer because of seeing the risen Christ. And number 12, Saul did too. So the critic, when they look at these, if they admit that these are historical evidences, they have to explain them, right? So one response is swoon theory. Jesus never really died. He got put in the tomb, uh, badly wounded, but not dead. Uh, This doesn't work. Roman soldiers didn't mess up executions. They were very good at killing people. And even if they did and put him in a tomb, there's no way that a wounded person in that kind of condition would roll away that stone and overpower a Roman guard and escape. And even if he did, there's absolutely no way his disciples would have been convinced he was a Messiah worth following. They would have thought he was a badly tortured human being that needed medical care, right? Uh, Some would say the body was moved or stolen. The the moved rebuttal doesn't work because the authorities simply would have produced the body, right, to stop this new spread of Christianity. The stolen argument doesn't either. Uh, These disciples couldn't have overpowered a Roman guard. Uh, There's no way that uh, they would have had the motivation for that. They were uh, fearing for their lives. We know that as a fact. And they surely wouldn't have gone on to face persecution and death for that lie if they had. Um, The mass hallucination is a big one, right? They say, oh, the eyewitnesses, 500 people had a mass hallucination of of Jesus. The problem is mass hallucinations don't happen. Uh, Hallucinations are audible or visual, not both. They usually don't happen with skeptics, and they usually don't happen over 40 days. (laughs) They're usually uh, confined to small amounts of time. So we see that that doesn't work. Now here's what you have to catch. Even if any one of those theories worked, they would only solve a few data points, right? So let's, let's say the mass hallucination theory was valid. It wouldn't explain the empty tomb. Or let's say the stolen body 
one was valid, well, it wouldn't explain the eyewitness testimony. So not only does the critic have to come up with unwarranted hypotheses to get out of the evidence, they also have to string several of them together to get out of the evidence. And that's actually something that historians aren't allowed to do. They're not supposed to string together unwarranted hypotheses. So this is a dilemma for the critic of the resurrection. The biggest critic a day, and I'm going to leave him unnamed because I just don't want to give him more recognition. But he says, quote, am I proposing, and he gives his alternative theory, which is a bunch of rebuttals like these. He says, am I proposing that this is what really happened, his rebuttals? And then he says, absolutely not. <laughs> right? And he admits his bias here. He says, whatever happened, it wasn't a resurrection because resurrections just don't happen, if that makes sense. What he's doing is he's starting with the conviction that resurrections don't happen. He's ignoring the evidence, and then he's ending up with his conclusion. Uh, you might call that circular reasoning. Uh, a philosopher would call it begging the question. At the end of the day, it's a logical fallacy. But it's how the biggest critic today, alive, gets out of the evidence for the resurrection. What we're talking about here is a fact. It's not just our particular belief. And as we come to this celebration today, it's not just a fact that's empty, but it's a fact that changed history. Right? The pharaohs throughout history built pyramids trying to achieve immortality. The first emperor of China would take mercury pills to try and achieve Eternal life didn't work. <laughs> He's dead. Right? Uh, many throughout the ages have promised eternal life, and they are dead. One throughout the ages promised eternal life and proved that he had power over death, and that's Jesus. Amen. And that's what we celebrate today. And that changes us, and it changes our focus. So I want to wrap up talking about a reality-changing focus and I'm going to read the last two verses here. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. So the status quo of humanity is just to try harder, to work harder. That is the opposite of grace. That's a totally different formula. Paul here recognized the truth of the gospel. He saw the risen Christ and he responded to this truth that we celebrate today. He put his faith in Jesus Christ alone as Savior and Lord and Jesus transformed him and he realized, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And God's grace in him began to work through him the life of Christ and all the situations around him. That's something that I want to close by encouraging us with this morning, is what we celebrate today, it really has changed everything, and it really should change us. We, we simply can't intellectually acknowledge this and not be changed by it, right? In fact, Paul previously used the, the term, unless you believed in vain, that, that vain belief would be the belief of the demons in James 2, right? Where they know intellectually, but it doesn't go any further than that. See, we're talking about a life-changing faith in Jesus Christ. A surrender to him as Savior and Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, you can look towards uh, a little further in the chapter in verse 14. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is vain and so is your faith. In other words, if the resurrection isn't true, don't even be a Christian, <laughs> right? 
Uh, And then he says in 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. So one way that you could look at that is, uh, if this isn't true, why live like it is? That's what Paul is saying, right? If Jesus didn't beat death, why are we celebrating here this morning? It's in vain to use Paul's words. But another way to look at that is, if this is true, how can we live like it's not? Does that make sense? That's what a lot of the Corinthians had been doing. They knew this was true, but they weren't living like it was true. And Paul challenges them in this chapter that this really should change everything. So, for the believers in here, I want to encourage the believers and the non-believers kind of separately here, but for the believers, I want to encourage you that, that what we celebrate today is true, and it should change everything. And you do not need to please God with your works, right? You are God's dearly loved children. You've been forgiven, and you are loved. And uh, nothing you do will earn his favor. In fact, the grace Paul talks about is the undeserved favor of God. So I'm not telling you, uh, believe that this is true and just crank out more work in your flesh. But if this is really true, let's let it work through our lives. Let's let it reach the people around us. There are people all around us that need to know the hope that we have. And God has put us here for this time and in this place to be a light. Because there are so many people that need him. So I would just encourage you as you celebrate Easter today, ask the Lord, how do you want to live your life through me by grace? How, how do you, what, do you, what would you like to be doing through my life? I'm willing, I'm available. It's that Isaiah 6, 8 statement, right? Here am I, send me. To have that kind of a response to what we are celebrating here today. Um, If you're not a believer, there is a life-changing hope available to you today. Many people have been stuck in this cycle of uh, performance-based acceptance. If I do enough good, I will earn God's favor. If I don't do bad, I will earn God's favor. And still somehow, at the end of the day, we all know that we fall short, not just of God's standards, but of even our own, right? Uh, On so many different levels. That is a formula that will not work. And it won't give you peace, and it won't give you salvation. There's a different formula. This is the one that says that God came down to this earth, and he lived a perfect life that none of us could ever live, and he died on the cross to pay for all of our sins. And he did that so that anyone who would trust in him as Savior and Lord would be forgiven and saved. Uh, That's the formula that will work. Unlike the one of always just trying to earn God's favor on our own. Um, Paul tells the Corinthians in the next book, in chapter 6, not to hear and receive this in vain, but to recognize that today is the day of salvation. If you've never come to that point of trusting in Christ as Savior and Lord, the same is true for you. Uh, Today is the day of salvation. In a minute, I'll give you an opportunity to respond to that. As we close, I just want you to know that this is the truth that changes everything. So as you go home and and eat lunch, celebrate with family and call loved ones and all that, uh, you're you're celebrating a fact of history that literally has changed all of history. And as a Christian, you can know with confidence that when you die, you're going to see Jesus with your eyes. Right? Uh, Jesus made a promise. I used to fear death so much. And John 6.40 liberated me from that. 
Jesus said, if I believed in him, he would raise me up at that last day. And it's the same for each and every one of you here in this room today. So we simply can't live like this is, tr- is not true. Uh, this is the truth that changes everything. Wherever you're at on the spectrum, I encourage you to respond to this today. If you're a believer, ask the Lord how he would have you respond. And if you're not a believer, I'm going to ask you to, to simply agree with me in prayer. You don't need to verbalize this uh, out loud here. Uh, it's something that I'm going to ask you to do with the Lord. And uh, simply to acknowledge that you're a sinner that needs a Savior, that Jesus was God in human flesh and died for your sins, and that he rose again to give you eternal life. Uh, prayer doesn't save anyone, right? But a prayer is a really good way of expressing our faith in God, right? To him, verbally. So uh, I'm going to pray, and you can agree with me if this is where you're at today. You could say something like, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins, and that you rose again to give me eternal life. Today, I ask you to be my Savior and my Lord. Uh, Please come into my life, and please make me the kind of person you want me to be. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer today, uh, there are going to be some some note cards in the back of the seat in front of you, like these. I would just encourage you to put your name down there, your address, or some way of contacting you. And uh, just put a big star on there, however you want to do that. Because you just started a new journey with the Lord, and we want to get somebody alongside you that can encourage you in that journey, okay? And just take this, you can just leave it on your seat. Uh, That's all you need to do. Or you could contact me or Kevin or anybody you saw up here to let them know of your decision. That would work too. Uh, I'm going to close this out in prayer, and uh, we're going to, I'll be down here. I I think some others will too. If you'd like to talk more, uh, you could come uh, talk here and uh, do whatever you need to do with the Lord. And afterwards, I'll be at the table out here, and I'd love to meet you. Jesus, we thank you for the truth that we celebrate today. We thank you that you conquered death once and for all, that you rose again, and that that's a fact that has changed history. God, we thank you for the work that you've done in all of our lives. God, I'm so thankful that you saved me from my sins and gave me the hope of eternal life. Uh, God, I pray that you bless these brothers and sisters as they leave this place to go and celebrate your resurrection. Uh, Give them an incredible afternoon. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your precious name we pray. Amen.